We're channeling our inner Minnie Ripperton as we take a walk down memory lane in Alejandro Varela's debut novel, The Town of Babylon. We talked to him about centering his story around Andres, a queer Latinx college professor who returns home to care for his sick father in the small suburban town of Babylon. On the heels of dealing with his husband's infidelity, he attends his 20-year class reunion where he reunites with his high school sweetheart Jeremy and reckons with his past. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined by the wonderful one and only Alejandro Varela. Alejandro is based in New York. His work has appeared in The Point Magazine, Boston Review, Harper's Magazine, The Rumpus, Joyland Magazine, The Brooklyn Rail, The Offing, Blunderbuss Magazine, Pariahs, the Southampton Review, and the New Republic. He is a 2019 Jerome Fellow in Literature, and his graduate studies were in public health. He is one of our book features for the month of June with his debut novel, The Town of Babylon. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alejandra. How are you doing? I'm great after that intro. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, we, we got to hype you up because we want everybody to know what a wonderful book you have written and given us uh, to read this month. It has definitely made us laugh. It has made us think. It has made us do all of the things that we want all literature to do. And um, we are so grateful to have this interview with you today. Um, before we get started with the hard-hitting questions, we like to do a segment um, that I'm going to pass off to Danny. <laughs> Who's your mama? No, I'm kidding. Um, so, so we usually ask like just um, fun questions in the beginning, but Veronica wanted to do a twist since this is, you know, we, we start your novel in a high school reunion. Um, so she wanted to do high school superlatives. <laughs> And this could be either an author that is living or dead. Um, and we're going to ask you like just a couple questions about the superlatives. Um, we start with um, an easy one. Um, class clown. Ah, class clown. Maybe David Sedaris. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's a good one. Most likely to be the life of the party. Why do I have a feeling it's Disha Filio? I agree. We we agree. <laughs> Most likely to be on catfish. That was my question. Oh, wait. <laughs> I will not answer that one. Wait, hold on. Is catfish the thing where where they get tricked into thinking they're having a date with someone that 
Well, that's me. <laughs> Most likely to to lead a protest. Sarah Shulman. Mm. Most likely to leave and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The ghosters. The ghost the ghosters. I was gonna hmm, who was one and done? Oh, that's true. One and done. One and done with books. Like dropped one and was like oh. Or do you mean who or do you mean who are you at the party with that suddenly says I'm going to the bathroom and doesn't come back? Let's go with that one. <laughs> that's true. Uh gosh, that is me. Mm. <laughs> I am that person. I will say I'm going to the bathroom and then I do not come back. One and done. Harper Lee, right? She wrote that one great book. Ah, yeah, oh, that's true. Um, and this one, um, and last but not the least, the beauty and brains combo. Beauty and brains. Oh, it's a toss-up. I'm either Justin Torres or Robert Jones Jr. Oh, there we go. Mic drop right there. <laughs> Mic drop right there. All right. So now that we've gotten that part out of the way, it is time for us to um, like really dive into you and this beautiful book of yours that you have written for us. Um, why don't you talk to us about the town of Babylon's origin story? What was the genesis of this writing project and what ignited the idea of this novel as well as the title. Okay. As you know, my background is in public health, or I think you know this. <clears throat> There's a town about 75 miles west of New York City, and it's called Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And in the late 1800s, uh, it, Italian immigrants settled there, and they worked in the slate quarry mines. And the owners of those mines were the Welsh and the English. And you know how, you know, the, the United States way is you get here, you get mistreated, and then the next group comes and you mistreat them, mm -hmm. right? And so the Italians were sort of under the boot, so to speak, of, of the Welsh and the English. But they were a tight-knit community and they settled this town, Rosetto, which was named after the town that they had all come from in Italy. And by the 1950s, they had created sort of a civil structure there. They had elected officials, they owned shops. There was some economic diversity, but by and large, it was a, a pretty flat community, which is to say there were three and four generations in each household, in all of the households, and all of the doors were unlocked and everybody looked out for each other. And one day, two, and there was no crime. And one day, the, the the doctor that worked in that town, in that, the health system of that, that town and the neighboring towns, was having a meal with a colleague of his, a researcher from Oklahoma, I believe. Stuart Wolf is the researcher. And the doctor said, you know, I don't have any patients. And he's like, what? He said, I don't, there are no heart attacks. And he was, I believe he was a cardiologist. I don't have, there are no heart attacks in this town. And the friend said, I need to. I need to visit this town. I want to know what's happening here. So he went with a team of researchers and they, not only were there no heart attacks, life expectancy was higher there than, than the national average. There was no crime. 
and everyone was just generally healthier. And so when they, what they assumed was at first, they thought it must be the Mediterranean diet, you know, olives, a glass of wine, some, I don't know, feta cheese or whatever. <laughs> and, um, but no, they spooned lard into every meal that they made. They drank more wine than the average American. They were more overweight than the average American. They smoked unfiltered cigarettes. Everything the Surgeon General at the time said, do not do because it's bad for your health. But we all learned we shouldn't be doing, you know, cut back on this and cut back on that and less salt and less this. They were doing it and they were living longer and healthier. Mm. And so what they realized after interviewing almost everyone, living in the town for a bit, getting to know everyone is that, they had such a tight knit social structure that the stress that most of us feel day to day, they had a buffer to it. So day in and day out, you feel stress at your job. You feel stress because of something a neighbor does, a stranger does, a police, you name it, there's stress in this world, right? They had that, but what they had was so strong when they got back home and in their community that it, it balanced it, it outweighed the stress of everyday life in a way that other communities weren't being outweighed. So they were living longer for it. They just didn't have all those ticks and cortisol that would like deplete the systems and increase the wear and tear. So I grew up, ah, so the researchers said, predicted that in 20 years, in a generation, they would catch up to the national average. And they were right. They went back and researched and found that the, the, the next generation wanted to leave. They were like, everyone's in my business. I want a bigger house. I want to live in a city. I want a nice car. I want to go away to college. And they did. And they sort of broke open this town that was no longer tight knit. And then, and all the, all the, all the gentlemen now had zippers on their chest from open heart surgeries. So all, they just became an American town, an average American town, so to speak. And I got to thinking about the Irish, Italian, Catholic, working class town where I grew up, primarily Irish, Italian. And I thought, well, we weren't pretty healthy. So what if we were the town after everyone left, after sort of they were breached? And so then I thought, I want to write about what that life was like. And then I combined it with some of the experiences I had growing up in the suburbs I chose the title The Town of Babylon because I was thinking somewhat biblically about this idea of communities not being able to speak the same language and sort of being, in a way, punished, thrown together in this space where they, they didn't relate to each other. And the more they didn't relate to each other, the worse things got. I was thinking that. It also happens that I grew up in a small town called Deer Park. And Deer Park is in the township of Babylon, Long Island. Mm. And so I thought, oh, that'll be my my little secret. No one will ever know that I'm referring to my town. Right away, my editor like wrote the blurb that went to Publishers Week or whatever. And it says about a town in Long Island. <laughs> and I said, Danny, why did you do that? And so there's really been no hiding it since because it is very much influenced by my Long Island upbringing. But uh, but yeah, it was hope it was operating on a couple of levels. Have you had anyone from your hometown as you know use that as an excuse of like this is wonderful that you're bringing us into this book in some sort of way i've had some people reach out to me on twitter and instagram it's let's say uh usually 
I'm also from the suburbs or I'm also from Long Island, not that town. Two or three have been like, I'm from Babylon or I grew up in Deer Park at, different, at a different time than I did. So I didn't know who they were. And I can't believe how you captured this so perfectly. This is my experience. I most often get folks who are like, I grew up in the suburbs mm-hmm. anywhere in the US and I can relate to this experience. And then I get separately, you know, uh, mostly Latinx folks will say, oh, I grew up in a mostly white town. This captures my experience too. Mm. But but yeah, but no one has from, you know, Deer Park or Babylon proper really kind of come out and been like, thank you for putting us on the map or or conversely, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe all of them are in hiding now. <laughs> So going going back to the town of Babylon, um, we see Andres, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So Andres comes home to help take care of his father, who is recovering from surgery, and suddenly finds himself attending his 20th high school reunion. The class reunion always seemed to be this event that either you came to show off or to get some tea on the personal lives of your classmates. Talk to us about choosing this personal, particular setting to be the catalyst of Andres' story in which major reveals were pulled from. I have never, I share this with Andres, I haven't kept in touch with anyone from high school. Hmm. I hear things through my siblings. I have an older brother and two younger sisters and my older, and I'm not on Facebook either. So my brother will sometimes be like, you'll never believe who came into the store. You'll never believe. So that doesn't happen as often as it used to, but I have always wondered what it would be like to to see all those people again. And yeah, I, I have moments where, you know, I spent 20 years thinking I don't have any desire. And now the older I get, sometimes I think, oh, I wonder if I messed up, you know? I wonder if I shouldn't have tried harder to keep in touch with people. Mm. Because I was the one that 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 left, you know? So I... I want so I wanted to tell this story about a town, but in particular through the experiences of people who had felt like outsiders in that town. Mm-hmm. And and then it sort of became about how do I how could I possibly see these people again and and have multiple stories. And so the the, the idea of a reunion really works in that way because that brings everyone at once, you know. And I did some research on reunions including the reunion to my high school. And I don't think they're particularly well attended. So I actually thought someone might call bull on me a little bit because this is a pretty well attended reunion. But because it was the 20th anniversary, I thought this is the kind of number that might bring out. It's like the last gasp, right? Like 30 people have moved away or start dying and all this sort of stuff. But but 20, it's like it's a round number. People get excited about round numbers and they might be like, okay, I'll go check it out. And it's still, as I say throughout, it's not even half of the class shows up. So I thought maybe I could get away with this. But yeah, the the reunion was was a place where I thought, I wasn't yet sure if all of the characters were going to be at the reunion or not, but I thought regardless, the information will be there and then Andres can work from there. This book, when reading it, it's so funny. I started reading it this past weekend. My high school reunion was this weekend. And I'm reading oh. it, and and, and then the funny thing is, while I'm reading it, I get a text message on Instagram, 
And it's one of my classmates asking me after I had like liked a picture because I've been looking at the videos and the pictures popping up and it was probably maybe like maybe 30 people that probably showed up. And she said, where were you? I was looking for you. I was you were one of the people I wanted to see. And I was like, ah, I need to come up with something. And I just told her, I was like, oh, I really wanted to be there, but I had a previous engagement, blah, blah, blah. And I just felt like, I guess the same way, it's like, I have no true desire to go back because the people who were there, I never really had a connection to any of those people um, outside of school. So it was like, whatever. But I thought it would felt like uh, I was looking into your crystal ball because it was like not only were you talking about a a reunion but you were also talking about Wimbledon Wimbledon has just started it was like the perfect timing of reading this book um but I want to go back and talk about um Andres for a minute and him coming back home and finding that a lot has not changed and essentially is stuck in the same mode of not being able to create community and evolve But um, as we see Andres colliding with his own past, uh, is it safe to say that his personal life has been in the same state as his home that he has returned to? Uh, In a way, yes. I think think the unhappiness that he has in his marriage was was a bit of a catalyst for him doing something so out of the ordinary for him, right? A lot of things lined up. It was a perfect storm. The The reunion was within walking distance of his parents' home. He happened to be home during it. And I think it's that moment of like, there's a staleness at home and you want to feel something new. And so even if it's not a good thing, you want to feel it. Even if it's a problematic thing, you just want to feel something. And I think that's what he was doing. I think he wanted to feel something and he went with it. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely went with it for sure. Yeah. I, I could never. <laughs> I, I could never. I think I I have done impulsive things in my life, but that's one where I would I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about trying to to seek out people who you were once involved in and and seeing where where all of that goes but definitely his character in this story had that desire that was hidden in the back of his head like not really thinking that he wanted to but then of course he wanted to he walked all the way to his class reunion so he yes. wanted to know right he yes. he was determined to see who would show up and he was hoping to see the people that he wants to see when he shows up there especially Simone and 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 Jeremy as we we later find out um but with in regards to the the parent portion of this book which I think you so eloquently did um map out for us and 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 for us to be able to draw upon these experiences of what it is to be a parent um it, it being one of the most difficult decisions that one takes on and it's this pressure of wanting to not ruin a kid's life you know you're wanting to make sure that you can elevate it as best as you can and it's marked on a easier path um that is not as heavy as theirs um and so we have Andres' mother Rosario and Simone's parents 
And they're seen wrestling with this very issue of wanting their children to go to the best schools and live in a good neighborhood. Um, being a part of the marginalized majority, we know that the struggle that comes in with making those choices to gain something, but dealing with the ramifications of having to sacrifice something uh, in order to get ahead and exist in this uh, majority white space. Mm-hmm. Expand on this particular element of, of your book. Yes. Um, again, I was thinking a lot about public health research and the importance of of seeing yourself in your community, which I, I think is different from representation. In it, they're similar, but it's uh, you know seeing yourself on a movie poster is important. You, we can't we can't knock that down. Uh, if it, but but always with the goal of changing a system, right? Because it's not just enough to see one person on a poster to get one Oscar nomination to, you know, you, we really need to see some systems change. Uh, and I think a lot of our families do this where we try to climb that ladder because mm-hmm. the, not just because it's the narrative of this country, right. Where it's like, that's you get to get ahead, to get ahead, to get ahead. You have to climb, climb. The more you suffer, the, the you know, the more valuable your successes are, you know, but at what, at what cost? And so in this particular case, Andres's family and Simone's parents left communities to climb. And, uh, and I think we're isolated as a result and didn't have the support that you need in order to thrive in this world. Mm. It's essential, and for very different reasons, right? And I, Andres's parents are immigrants who, I don't write it, but who just finished high school or barely finished high school, did not go to college. Simone's parents are, you know, they're PhD in their fields, and they end up in the same terrible school system, in the same, you know, you know, sort of middle of the road or no, not even the middle of the road, a pretty terrible neighborhood in, in many regards. That's all based in fact. I mean, Long Island is like that. Yeah. A Black family can't be shown houses in the nicer neighborhoods. Um, and I'm sure it's not just Black families, but these are the most egregious, as is always the case, right? And there was an expose about this in Newsday a couple of years ago. It's still happening. Mm-hmm. And so then you end up going to the schools that you can go to. Or in this case, they had more means, so then they sent her to the Catholic school. And so then you end up sort of performing a life that isn't the life you even want just so that you can get ahead in the hopes that you make it out. But um, it, it really is a terrible kind of situation, and, and the options are neither is a great option, right? Because being in community is wonderful and beautiful, but if that community also is being oppressed and there aren't opportunities then you sacrifice something else by staying behind. So, yeah, I, I feared that someone might read this book and say, ah, the answer is to segregate and just grow power within communities. Yes, politically growing power within a community is essential. But I wasn't saying that at all. I, what I was saying is that differences are important and beautiful as long as they don't become barriers 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happens in our country is that our differences become barriers. And then we decide that like, oh, all differences are bad. No, 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 no. They're only bad when we, when they get sort of weaponized. Right. And so Rosetto, Pennsylvania and Babylon and you name it, the argument isn't that the Italians shouldn't have left. It's that as everyone came in, they should have been just as welcomed. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, they shouldn't have been forced to compete with each other. It shouldn't have been, it should never have been. And that's a governmental thing, right? Like who's being welcome in, what kind of jobs, what's minimum wage like, what are union memberships like, you know, all of those things, when they're not there, then people start to just sort of work against each other. You're the enemy coming in to take something as opposed to share in something. I would suggest to anybody who would read your book to couple it with, um, two books and one being uh, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee and then a recent uh, interview we did with an author by the name of Nima Avashia and uh, mm-hmm. who is uh, Indian descent and grew up in uh, West Virginia mm-hmm. and Appalachia. this story completely lines up on the importance of what it is to be a part of a community that might not visually look like you but it's one that is welcoming you and and trying to create that community while also having those moments of uh racism which is you know prevalent uh throughout um the south and then she has this shift with uh of a family a family friend who, when she comes back, who has gone through this horrible loss of losing his wife, kind of find himself sunk into taking on a lot of uh, conservative, extreme conservative uh, intel and it kind of tainting him or bringing out something she never mm. quite understands. But then you start to see that the seams of this community in which they were trying to create what you're saying is important is, is it has devolved, right? And I I really like how you are choosing to deal with the themes of this within your book of showing why it is important to have that community and why it's necessary. And um, I think you, you, you articulated it so well throughout the story of showing like the importance of, of having that community. But I think, you know, like the community is important, but like what you and Nima have mentioned is like the systems that surround those people is as important as the people that are in it. Cause like there, when, when mining was gone, then it's basically like what is left in the community, the, the thing that would sustain you would also kill you kind of deal. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like, then it's basically like not just our little problem, but the whole country's problem. Like, you know, we can start from like capitalism from there and go go down deep and then it's it's just it's a lot of things all at once Mm -hmm. but I think you tried to very much not um like put into a microscope a community where everybody I think can identify with it and I think that's why your book works Mm -hmm. and I think it helps with a lot of people when trying to understand you know this little this little community is like magnified in the whole United States and everybody's trying to live like this. That's why we're all in disarray. Mm-hmm. I love that. And um, thank you both for putting me in the same category as Nima. Another Appalachia is a book that I have on my desk ready to read. And 
not just that, she met me in a bookstore in in Boston and was my scene part. Because I usually, when I read, I read dialogue. There's a lot of dialogue in my book, my work. And during the book tour, I just started inviting fellow writers to come meet me and read the scenes with me, to play parts with me. And Anima played Jeremy in a scene, and that we that we uh, acted out together in a bookstore in in Brookline, technically, but in the Boston area. Uh, and so I'm very very grateful to her. She's a wonderful person. Oh, look mm. at that! Our favorite people come finding each other. <laughs> <laughs> So most of the authors on our show that are from immigrant parents always told us that their parents were the ones who had to suffer the most so that children or the next generation after that can afford to live a better life. And I've definitely mm. seen that in Rosario, um, especially blaming herself for the fate of what happened to her children. Mm. Um, tell us more about this pressure that plagues immigrant parents. It almost feels like damn if you do or damn if you don't moment and why do they feel like they can never they can never get this right oh it's a great question um i think it i always come back to systems but it, it really you are set up to fail in this country it's near impossible because when you come here as an immigrant right? I believe you feel always like a guest. Yes. And you never fully, or it takes a long time. You have to be a pretty empowered person, you know, pretty rad, righteous person to arrive. And I know those people mm. who, who, they, who think borders are political. I'm still a human and I don't care where I land. I deserve respect and dignity and I'm going to fight for it or, or I'm going to demand it. My parents weren't those people. Yes, they I think there's a lot of dignity in the way they live their lives and they do demand respect, but there was always this element of, we are guests. We would talk about Los Americanos, which usually meant white people, by the way. Okay. That's another conversation. And which was crazy because I'm like, wait, aren't I an American? So are we talking about me? No, we're not talking about me. We're talking about the other, the other people, which is such a contradiction with how I was raised because when you are the host, you treat your guests with such respect. Mm. You give them everything they need. The thing that I would hear when we would have a guest in our house, the very first thing my father would say to anyone and still does, he says, you're in your house. This is your house. To my friends, to neighbors, to relatives that would come visit, which is to say, feel at home you're hungry, go grab something. But not that they would ever let you because they're going to feed you and feed you and feed you. But yes, did you, you eat? <laughs> yeah, right. So it, it's kind of, a, it was a fascinating thing. So it was like, we're guests, but this is a crap host in a lot of ways. You know, it's not a very good host to this country in, in that regard, right? And so you come here, you feel like a guest, you work really hard, you put your head down, you don't get involved in their business because they're the host. And so- Mom, I think there's racism. No, no, no. That's their problem. That's not us. We don't see those things. What about the politics? I, I, I don't have time for that. Just work hard, work hard, work hard. And uh, it's a it's a once in a lifetime experience because then you have kids who are here and they're citizens. They were born here, usually. Well, in this case, 
and they don't feel like guests anymore. You sort of start to be like, oh, I, I deserve to get paid more. I'm not going to work that hard for that much money because I, I'm more aware of the laws. I'm more empowered or I just that's not what my friends are doing. And so you might have some of the same work ethic and some of the same insecurities and doubts, but not the same. It's not the same drive. It's not, it's rarely the same kind of pressure. It's a different kind of pressure. It's a different kind of drive. And so I think you're never really at home. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, you're never really at home. You never feel completely comfortable but you can never stop working. There's no time to relax because then the moment you do, you feel like now you're a freeloader. Now you're the thing that's been villainized Mm -hmm. this entire time. And so um, that generation that first gets here, I I have a lot of empathy for them because Mm -hmm. I think you sacrifice a lot of your integrity and your self-determination to please others. And it doesn't have to be this way. Oh, it just doesn't. And that's the part I think people don't always get because we're so in it, in the system, in the cycle, that no one ever stops to say, it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. We could actually have a system where you get here and there's like a civic education class and everybody gets taught the, like what their rights are and they're offered job opportunities and education opportunities. It, it could be that way. Right. And so... um. And so, yeah, so I think Rosario is kind of like, I must, like, I can't, I don't have any connections to this place. So then I have to protect my family at all costs. But in the process of doing that, she didn't let her children acclimate in a way, you know, they were never fully integrated into the to the culture. And the other problem with the United States is you have essentially one generation to get it right. right. In terms of the, in terms of the immigrant experience, mm-hmm. because if you don't get in, then that parent may not see racism, but that kid knows racism. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And and by the third generation, it's like it's just like the Rosetto kids. Right. Now your same life expectancy, all the protective factors that come from being an immigrant. They've, they've disappeared. They've disappeared. And so. Yeah, this is a rough this is a rough place. So the American dream is a bit of a myth. But about 10 years ago, I was in a. Car, a cab. And I was talking to the driver was from Ecuador and we were talking about it. And he refer, he was telling me, yeah, I've been here 20, 30 years on and off. He goes home and, he, and he's like, but I'm fulfilling the American dream. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you know, the American dream to get out of this place as soon as you can. So he says, I, I came here, worked really hard, bought a home there, then bought a home for my parents and bought a home for my sister. And now I'm just waiting to pay off some mortgages. And then I get to go back and really be where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, listen. Isn't that a nice spin on the American dream? I mean, it's still, yeah. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about all of the ways in which people never see justice before they go. And the older I get, the, the more that weighs on me mm. because it's really frustrating when, when, there's a, when there's a court decision or something that is positive, right? When you see a justice or something achieved, my first thought is, all the people who didn't live to see it, right? who wanted to see it, who deserved to see it and mm-hmm. to live it. And so now I'm on this thing where I'm like, are we going to see reparations in our lifetime? There, it's a, it's a no, it's a not no brainer for me there from a public health perspective. It is one of those, if someone said to me, what are the five policies reparations is in like 
if it's not number one, it's number two. But mm-hmm. it's my number. It's been my number one for a long time because everything else that we try and to do to achieve this racial or economic equity or all the things we proclaim as a country, equality, that's the that's the ticket right there. Mm-hmm. That's that's the big policy, along with a couple others. And so everything else that we do, you know, where we like try to retrain cops or we change one thing on the budget here and there. And I'm like, no, just do the reparations, please. Let humans decide for themselves. Just give them what they're owed. And so anyway, <laughs> sorry, I got off on a tangent there, but, but, um, but yeah, damned if you do, damned if you don't in this country. Yeah, like going back to what you said, like how it could have all been so simple. And I just think about that, especially, you know, um, since 2020, it could have all been so simple. It just felt like we were on the Titanic and they didn't get the information. Nobody steered the wheel a different direction before it was time. And we have run into this huge glacier of problems. And it's just been one thing, one thing after the other. Right. And I mean, even not even 2020, we could say 2016. And um, I think what gets lost and forgotten is the fact that we made all of this shit up. Like we're just out here making up rules and changing them. And by we, I don't mean us, but them, the collective them who want to maintain control because of greed. Uh, And it's really frustrating. And, you know, it goes back to when you're saying how frustrated you are of how people who work so hard are not always able to see the fruits of their labor. And I just think about when Martin Luther King is like, I might not get to the promised land. And him knowing, like, I will not probably see any of these changes that we're working towards and how frustrating that is to think, you know. And then there are those shining moments when those things happen and those laws pass and those presidents that we never thought would get elected are elected. And you're just kind of like, oh, you know, it's still possible that hope still is there and we can we can pull on that. But we just got to do the right thing once we get those those moments once we get to that point and that's when it sometimes goes the wrong way because even then you got to hold yourselves responsible (laughs) everybody doesn't always want to you know play in that that field I I struggle sometimes with what am I doing you know in the public when I was working in public health I thought this is good this will spin the wheel in the right direction I can do a lot of good with this but like you said, it's, it can be very frustrating because you have these successes and then we don't keep the momentum going and we can't change people's minds. I think in a way, this may sound cheesy, but I really did switch to this sort of narrative form of, of work because I thought if I could communicate these ideas in a, in a, in, in a way that, that had some permanence to it, that mm-hmm. could stay with people for a while, then... And then maybe that would help because every other way just feels like, how are we going to get to it? How are we going to, we're never going to get it because there are all these interlocking pieces. And just when you think you've gotten someplace, it's like, nope, roadblock yes. and then roadblock. And then there's no momentum. And then you finally get the president and we get him for two years. And then he wasn't really that progressive to begin with, but then it didn't help that like the entire Congress said no to everything all the time. And then people, so there are all these things, you know, and you're like, how are we going to, and ultimately it's, you know, it's community and it's people power for sure. But uh, yeah, but my hope is that through this writing, just keep keep having these conversations about these ideas. Let's not let them 
disappear because they are feasible. It, it's as simple as just signing a piece of paper. Right, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like like you said earlier, one you can always go go off tangent. There's no going off tangent with with your because <laughs> it it covers everything. And two, I I can like while I was reading your book, I can feel the heaviness. And now talking to you, like it makes more sense because like you know, like even though there's community, the heaviness resides in your heart. Like just as we were talking about it, like I can feel my heart like just mm. like pumping, and I'm like you know. Mm. You know, like I can feel like my blood, not really my blood boil, but I can just, there's this stress. There's this like, Im- not, there's this like imprint on me, like this is just hanging in the air. When we talk about these things and like, I always think like, how can people not just think about other people in this manner so we can all just live mm. like how we're supposed to live? It like really angers me to a point that, I don't think I want my child or my children to be this angry. Mm. So mm. I res- I respect your decision of like putting things into like you like you said a more a more tangible piece like a book so it can be shared it can be read it can be talked about and it's more like it feels more open almost and people are not so quick to just oh you know you 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 just start talking about all these other things because you think this is the right and we're always the wrong. But mm. if you put it in, in, in this kind of, in this, in this form into a book, it, it opens up dialogue, mm. which I think we all need so we can like open our minds. Mm. And maybe mm. that's one of the reasons that I didn't go <laughs> through my master's. <laughs> <laughs> because i'm just like i'm gonna be stressed forever (laughs) but anyway i digress no thank you for that (laughs) so uh going back to the story and and with our characters andres and and jeremy um Mm. you Mm. have given us a story that is rich with lost love and the possibility of finding that love again and seeing a queer love story like this is so important in literature. What was your intention when you laid these characters down on the paper to bring light to the varied ways of how love can and does exist outside of the heterosexual viewpoint? Mm. So um, I want to just take a quick moment to say, and I, I shouldn't, I've never taken a queer or women's studies class in my life, and I'm remiss. But I have, but I have read a lot of political texts, many of which end up in queer and women's studies classes. So I'm not grasping for straws here when I say that I always distinguish gay and queer. In that queer, to me, takes into account all of the ways in which our oppressions are related. You know, there's a real political analysis. Like, what are the root causes? What Yes, there's homophobia, but what is its connection to misogyny and what's its connection to racism and how do all these pieces come together? And gay to me nowadays just mean, you know, two guys having sex and, you know, possibly going to Pottery Barn. That's right. And that's not necessarily fair because, you know, 60 years ago, gay was a very politically charged word and it meant maybe that what queer means today, Mm -hmm. you know. But today, yeah, so I wanted to distinguish. And so I identify as a, as a queer person because my sexuality, my sexual orientation 
feels very political to me and it feels uh, like it's connected to the system that oppresses other identities. Mm. And I wrote this relationship between Jeremy and Andres because I liked the idea of exploring love across class and race. Mm -hmm. And I liked also the romanticism of a first love. Yes. I didn't have a first love. So I, I don't, I can't 100% um, relate, but I've seen it. I've witnessed it enough. And I've, I have a love. I just happened to marry my love and it was my, you know, met well, well later, not in high school. But this idea of people, of young adults or of children really finding love is always so fascinating to me. I'm like, how do you balance all of that? Isn't it just so stressful? How do you, anyway, so. By hormones, that's what it right, is. Right, hormones, all right. And, uh, and I liked the idea of these two boys kind of growing up in that way together and and making it work my partner we would read the first drafts of the books and he would say they're so mature for their age like that they've figured this all out and but i i've seen that in that age group there are things kids kids are figuring these or have figured these things out and in any case so i wanted to explore this relationship this idea of uh of a first love and then makes perfect sense 20 years earlier they're in the same sort of stratosphere. But now, Andres, it would be like one of Simone's parents marrying one of Andres's parents, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't really make sense. I, I believe you can have love across class, but it's the same way and across race for sure. I mean, this happens all the time, but we must acknowledge that society makes that relationship very difficult, right? Uh and and so ultimately people have said oh my god this is a great love story and was it why didn't he end up with jeremy and i wanted to talk a little bit about the practicality of love too right like it it didn't make sense in some ways he just starts to see the sort of immaturity of jeremy you know when they try to have difficult conversations he reverts you know he kind of shuts down and then he thinks of like his husband marcos and marco and how this is a mature, accomplished human who knows him and understands him and gives him a stability that he's never really had, mm-hmm. right? And to go back to this life, Jeremy represents that instability of being on the cusp of poverty, on the cusp, you know, like, although financially Jeremy's fine because of all these things that keep getting passed down, mm-hmm. but but this I, that, that return to that life that I think has scarred Andres, that part of the running away and, and embracing the new life is just who doesn't want security, right? Yeah. Economic security, social security, just, uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah. So that, that's, those are sorts of some of the things I had in mind when I was, was writing that. Now I have to admit, I did not want to make Andres and Jeremy so central to the book. It got away from me because while I was writing it, I had 150 songs. I made a playlist of all the songs from those two or three years. And I kept listening to those songs the entire time. It's like 160 songs over and over and over and over and over again. And at some point I was listening to some pretty bad music. Some (laughs) of those songs are not great, but they're pop hits. And so you know them. And there was one song in particular 
and I kept sort of seeing their relationship in, in that song. And then it, it took on a life of its own. It did become more central than, than I anticipated. Yeah. It, I'm glad you brought up music in terms of, of what you're writing, because I did find that you had this, this long playlist of music that you were using. Do you always use music when you write or was it just particular to this book? Yeah, music and film are so central to my, I was more of a music and, and TV and movie kid than I was a book kid. Mm. So I, I think I write with that aesthetic even, you know, and um, and when, whenever I'm I'm writing, I'm I have headphones in, or there's music playing in the background, and so yeah, music is always, always, always there. How early did you find your love for music and television? Oof. Uh, my mother is a massive fan of music, mm-hmm. and so for as long as I can remember, music and and stereo and radio, and then the collection of music has been a big deal. I would say. Um, I remember having those, you know, the small, the records of the, the, the smaller ones, not the oh, big records. 45. 45. Yeah, those were a big deal. And I think, and then the cassette tapes. And I think that lends itself a little bit also to what I could afford. Mm. And so I would go to the music store every Tuesday and stand in front of the billboard chart and then read them and be like, I need every one of these. So I had my after work job and my aunt who would give me birthday gifts. She was always very generous. And I would buy either the, an album with a few hits was, you know, that was a money saver because then I didn't have to buy too many individual singles. So like if in, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking like En Vogue, Funky Divas, that comes out that has like four, five songs. So that's, it's cheaper to buy that album. Anything by like Mariah Carey, a Michael Bolton album, which I'd like sit, you know, <laughs> Paul Abdul's album, Faith, Bad, uh, any Whitney album. These are so then I those, of course, you buy the album. But then there are the singles, the, the one hit wonders or the two hit wonders. And then the horrible thing happens is you bought two or three singles and you realize the whole album's good. So then you have to buy all of it and then you <laughs> bought the singles. And um, so, yeah, so I could afford those things. Mm-hmm. And so then I started collecting them. And then you come home and my parents aren't there and I can watch the last soap opera opera on abc whatever that was probably like general hospital and then everything that was syndicated that came after until my parents got home which was eight or nine so talking like four or five hours of television every single day after school every single day all the reruns everything and i we were so that was a big part of our lives charles in charge a different world i mean these are the, the shows that get sort of repeated over and over and over and over again let me ask you in terms of the, the music aspect of it, um, what does that mean for you as it being a, a tool that could possibly help to achieve community when you think about music? So music works two ways uh, in this book. The suburban experience for me is, is very much driving. You're always in a car. And Top 40 radio is pretty boring. It's great when you're living it, but when you actually examine how many songs and what types of songs, you're essentially listening to the same 20 songs, if you're lucky, over and over and over and over again. Maybe it's like 12 or 13. But we all have that. And so I 
there's a line in the book where I say that we don't have anything in common except that we both have a spot in our brain for Biggie and Goo Goo Dolls. Yes. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> it's a true story. And I, I think that's one of the things I like about social media is periodically I'll just see someone say something about Tevin Campbell. And I'll be like, I thought I was the only person who loved Tevin Campbell. And then you see the legions come out for Tevin. And you're like, I, I love that he's getting love and respect, you know, in that way, because I think he was amazing. He was such a young kid to have that beautiful voice and those, all those songs. Anyway, so how does it unite? I think it's that we have these sort of shared, the shared love for music. And often it is pop music. It's popular. And so it's, it's the most accessible kind. And we all have it. And, um, and that can be very uniting in a cheesy way in a bar. If it comes on, you notice everyone's singing along or mouthing to the same, to the same song. Or it can be more meaningful, I guess. Um, you know, more appreciation for it. And yeah. Two, like two things. Like, I think my heart broke a little bit when you didn't say that you didn't have a first love. I'm like, not you. You wrote, you wrote this so well. <laughs> How could I... I'm lost for words, but second, I thought I was the only one who knew about the Hansons. And I'm just like, it made into the final cut. It made into the the 22 songs that are published in Spotify. Holy shit. (laughs) Mbop is a, is a bop. It's not, (laughs) it's the silly song. It's the like really bad lyrics. But it's got such a such heart to it, and it's so addictive. <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm a little embarrassed, but not so embarrassed that I like it. That I came to like a lot of these songs because I was I listened to them the entire time I was writing the novel. So I really yeah. came to appreciate some of these songs. No shame, because that song just brought me back when I was like like maybe 10 and it was sticky in the Philippines it's humid and we it's summertime and that's the only thing that we open we blast the radio on we don't have air conditioning <laughs> we had fans that were like dusty and noisy and then you were just like oh my god it's a song that's like about like <laughs> three boys that are kind of cute and it, that was that was the summer it, it brought me back so thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny um I uh you said something else oh about first love I don't I guess I shouldn't say I didn't have a first love I guess it wasn't epic you know I'm sure if I thought about it I would think I had an infatuation and I don't always know the the difference between yeah I've been infatuated with people before and it can be a little obsessive, but it's usually just in my head, you know, <laughs> and I bet I, I wanted something that was reciprocal. I also really wanted, I, I forgot, I wanted to answer this earlier. I think so much of what I've seen of queer love in books and television and everywhere is always so traumatic. Yes. And, uh, and there's a there's some trauma to this, of course. It doesn't end well. And there's the parents in the town and it's secret. But there's also a lot of lo- love, you know, and sweetness to their relationship. And I liked the idea of of telling those stories too, because they exist as well. 
Yeah, it's nothing like being able to to get a full love story where it has a happy ending because you see that play out, you know, when someone yeah. says, what's your favorite movie? I'm like, oh, Sleepless in Seattle because it's about a woman that stalks a man and they end up together rather than her right, like right, in right. jail, right? <laughs> so <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's good when you can see your, what, you know, your self-reflected in a love story and it have a, have a good ending and not be traumatic. Um, and, uh, and, and you just, like we said earlier, you've executed that also well within, within this book. So even before your book was published, you convinced me that you already have to be in this podcast because I saw your Instagram stories where you were talking about your bookshelf. And I was like, first of all, like, I think what lured me in is like the public health. And you were like, oh, and these, these books need to be talked about. And then these are the journals that published me and shout out to those who did it, you know, who you are. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, Veronica, we need to talk to him. (laughs) <laughs> thank you we, were, we are very honest in this podcast when we said that we didn't grow up reading the stuff that we are reflected on on the pages like you said yeah. representation and just like representation and seeing yourself like right just right there it's like two different things almost like sometimes we coin representation very very loosely mm. was it and when I was looking at your at your shelf, like I think it was one of the more um, diverse bookshelves that we've we've seen from an author. Mm. Um, how was that? How, did how was that process for you? Like, did you already start? Like, oh, you know, I'm gonna go in on this. Was it readily available to you? Like, oh, this these are the authors that I'm gonna like follow mm. or read. Because it, it took us almost a lifetime before we found those. Yeah. That's how we do this. Uh, about 10 or so years ago, I I don't know if it's because I read something somewhere that inspired me. I decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to take any media in made by white men, straight white men in particular. I, I have a lot of straight white men in my life who I love. It, this is not to dog anyone in particular, although we can if you want to. But I... I really wanted to to change my lens to the world. Mm. Everything, almost everything I had consumed until I made that decision, 90% of it was had been made by white men. Even the stuff that I thought wasn't made by white men, That's even good. the sitcoms that I thought weren't made by white men ended up being like Norman Lear, who's a good white guy, but he's still a white guy. Mm-hmm. And the writer's room was probably mostly white men. And so that, that it doesn't pretend, it doesn't give us a, an authentic depiction of, of, of our society and of our lives. And so, yeah, my partner and I, we said everything, Netflix, movies, books, we're only going to read folks of color, trans folk, women, um, and, and that's really go full throttle. Yes, we make exceptions all the time. Uh, but, but that was a concerted effort because I thought I'm, I can't possibly get a a real understanding of what society is. I can pretend I can try, 
my all my friends can be people of color, can be marginalized folks, but if I then go and consume only things made by white people, then that's going to color everything. And it does, eh? it really does. And now it's kind of just a no-brainer for me. I think before where I was like looking for lists all the time and trying to make sure I had read all the seminal texts and really got into it. Now it's just sort of like I, you know, you know, and I gravitate towards particular writers and their tastes and things like that. And I, sometimes I have to force myself to read white men because mostly I want to be able to have conversations. I'm in this field of writing and I, I'm new to it. I was never much of a reader of fiction before I started writing fiction. And I was embarrassed about that and very nervous. Even the questionnaire at the beginning, the superlatives, I thought, oh gosh, I don't have like tro troves of, of, of authors in my head all the time because it's still a relatively new endeavor for me to commit to fiction. And I do it. It's, it's, I read all the time. And, um, but yeah, so that, that was a, a great, and I, it's funny. I would say 75% of my, of what I read are, are women authors. Mm -hmm. And at first it was like, you know, an effort also because the systems are inside of me too. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I can talk a big game, but I, I have misogyny in me and racism and homophobia and transphobia. I have all of those things inside of me and society is constantly forcing it on you. So even as you peel off a layer, then they throw another one back on you. It's just thinner. So you don't realize, but then you're like, oh, wait, where did I get that idea from? Why am I thinking this way? And so reading, yeah. Also from a public health perspective, this is a thing that I would teach to my students. There's so much power in telling your own story and in seeing yourself, you know, on the page or on the screen depicted in an authentic way. And that power leads to a kind of a, self-efficacy that then allows you to to take action right. to change if you don't have that everything else is harder yeah and so yeah so in that way it, it was very important for me to to consume art made by all the people who don't have a voice in society so otherwise yeah now we are uh, gonna go ahead and and come to the close of our conversation but before we do we always like to ask all of our guests who come on the show, what their top five favorite books are of all time, since you're talking about books and those things that you're looking to devour that have that thing reflected back to you. Um, now, it can be books that you've read before that have been out into the world for a while, or it can be five books that you are excited about and that you want people to know that they haven't quite heard of yet, or it can be a mix. You can do whatever you want. It's up to you. Mm. All right. So in terms of books, hmm, I'm thinking the bluest eye, Toni Morrison, because it had such a profound impact on, on what I'm writing on what I wrote. Um, I don't know if this is the, my, then I'm going to say another one. I don't know if this is the, best of her work or not but I really loved it and I love her writing um The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich mm. it's a it's a gorgeous gorgeous book it's really powerful and Giovanni's Room mm. um, that was the first James Baldwin book I ever read I'd read a couple essays before and I read it at a time when I, I really needed to read that book. And I, it was very, very moving for me. Um, 
yeah, it, uh, I don't cry a lot, mm-hmm. but that book made me cry. And I loved it. And I have a list here. Every time I read something, I put like little stars next to it. So I'm looking for all my three. It's just one, two or three stars. Uh, oh, The City and the House by Natalia Ginsberg. Mm. Beautiful book. I really enjoyed that as well. She, she has a way of capturing time and geography. Um, it, 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 they felt like characters as I was reading them, the time and the geography of it. And um, it's funny, A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid. Mm. <laughs> I'm writing, I'm starting to work on a new book and she... I want to write, uh, it's a bit more cutting. It's um, a little nervous about it because the some of the negative stuff I've heard about Babylon is just that it can be a little bit too preachy. But I I knew what I, I knew that was a possibility. But I this is part entertainment, part advocacy. So I knew what I was putting out there and I knew it was not everyone was going to love it in that way. But I want to go even further and really criticize some of the stuff going on in the city where I live and uh, Jamaica Kincaid and Thomas Bernhardt are two two writers who I think do a beautiful job of using a scalpel Mm -hmm. to kind of cut to cut to cut you down and so A Small Place or Lucy both are books that I just oh god they're so amazing she's so good I just want to watch her you know shred things (laughs) <laughs> and um so yeah so those and maybe maybe the loser by thomas bernhardt for the same reason just those are fresh on my mind right now i mean i've definitely left out a few the other two that inspired me when i was writing the book in the time of butterflies Julia alvarez and the dispossessed by ursula Le Guin, for different reasons but you know just Justice is on the page. They're epic. They're beautiful. Also, Le Guin has a way of showing you what the world could be. Mm. And I I love that. I love that. How do you come up with the the rating, the the three stars? Are you like the Michelin star? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to keep it. I wanted to keep it simple. So a three is just like, I can't believe what I just read. Mm. Everything is amazing and inspiring. Two is like, it's pretty good, but it didn't get there. One is like, okay, I got to give it some credit. And zero is like, it's not necessarily bad, but I think it was a little bit, I don't, I'm not going to reread this. Right. I think one day we might find out that Alejandro works for Kirkus. On the <laughs> side. Who's getting those stars? Those, those classified information. That's so funny. I know those people. Man, I don't know how, how they get their rating system like. Like, how does this book not get a star? And this one has a star. I don't know, but. I know. I feel the same way. If you figure it out, please let me know. (laughs) It's a a big mystery, like those Michelin stars for for food. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they just show up with like mustaches and wigs and you don't even know. Well, Alejandro, we just want to say thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us about your your book we hope that everybody who is listening who has yet to go and purchase this is like going straight to the bookstore right now 
to purchase the town of Babylon is something that everyone should have and read and have on their shelf. And if you ever get to meet him in person, always have him sign your book because it is the best. I love what you're doing with your autographs and that you're posting them. So thank you. It just makes my day. And I I definitely believe you when you say that Jennifer Lewis, she (laughs) deserves all the awards, all the awards, and everybody, mama. She just been doing everything on everything, TV. everything, everything. She, I don't understand. She could have won for many different shows by now. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Just what's love got to do with it? Oh, Hello. <laughs> I love it. oh yes, thank you. Um, well, no, can I also just say, Danny Veronica, thank you, thank you for everything that you do to promote us writers, to lift us up, to do it with so much joy and beauty and humor. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, thank you for writing what you write. Yes, too. thank you for giving another another immigrant some hope that at some point it will all be better for all of us. I don't know, yeah. like said it might not be in this lifetime but maybe the next maybe the children of our children's would see it but it weighs heavy on your mind and also in my heart but it was a very very good story that I've read it I think what I liked the most about it it was really realistic like Mm. I I see me I see I see my family I see the people that I love in it so thank you so much um this is a pleasure Stay popping on Instagram, stay popping on Twitter, publish those tweets. I'm living for them. Just (laughs) (laughs) thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, you enjoy the rest of your your vacation there. Thank you. Love to you both. All right, take care. Bye. Good night. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.